Hey there, and welcome to the podcast of Real Life Spokane. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We hope this podcast encourages you and points you closer to Jesus. Let's jump in. Well, I'm excited for today. Uh, about 2013, I started in a reading group with um, Dr. Jerry Sitzer, several other local pastors. He got a bunch of us young church planners in Spokane together and said, hey, we got to do some work. We got to kind of, you know, get you guys a little more grounded uh, in <laughs> what it means to be Jesus Church. And so we started reading authors that were from third, fourth, fifth century and just started mentoring us in church history. And I'm so thankful for God using this man in my life. He has become a mentor, a friend, and somebody that I value a ton. Would you welcome Jerry Sitzer here today Thank to be you. with us? I've made my uh, living <clears throat> teaching church history. Oh, you're here again. How nice to have you here. This is so great. Yeah, and Richie, but you had to be here. He didn't have to be here. Um, for over 30 years, so I read this stuff, and I think about this stuff. I dream about this stuff. Um, and uh, every, every Sunday morning when I get up, I'm, I'm, I'm an early riser. I always spend some time pondering the church gathered around the world, because that happened, you know, gathered around the world every week. We tend to think everybody speaks and worships in English. Uh, right now, around the world, on this day, the church is using over 2,000 different languages. Kiswahili in East Africa. A Korean, the church in Korea is gigantic. They have the largest churches in the world. There's one that worships with 750,000 people every week. One church, not a denomination, just one. Uh, I was invited, actually, to uh, visit Korea last year. I decided not to go too far away. But they had me on a speaking tour, and one of the churches I was going to speak in worshiped 75,000 people a Sunday. Kind of small potatoes in Korea, I guess. Anyway, and, you know, we worship in lots of different ways. I mean, you're, you're kind of bouncy, a lot of hands waving and this sort of thing. Uh, there are other churches that are much stiffer and quieter. Uh, there are churches that sing hymns that are 1,800 years old. You've never sung a hymn by Prudentius, have you? Ah! But he wrote uh, in Latin some beautiful poetry in the 4th century. Um, and we sang everything that's written within the last five years. And Phil Wickham wrote the last one that sounds a little like a hymn. Ah, I thought to myself, I'm finally home, I'm finally home, a hymn. Anyway, doesn't matter. The fact is, we're all gathered together for only one reason. Not because we live in America or in Korea, not because we're white or Asian or anything else, not because we're rich or poor, male or female. Uh, we're the church for only one reason, and that's because of Jesus Christ. And we forget that way too often. We put something else as more important, like the color of our skin or our nationality or a political affiliation. Put it all aside. That is not why we're the church. We're the church because of Jesus Christ. Speaking of Jesus Christ, that's what I'm going to talk about today. But from um, uh, an unusual perspective. Uh, let's begin by hearing the Word of God. This is from Paul's letter to Philippi. Now, you've got to remember, Paul is writing this thing, oh, uh, maybe 20 years after Jesus uh, died and was raised from the dead. 
very early in the history of the church. Philippi is a Roman city. Uh, it's got a small Jewish presence, but it's a pagan city. Uh, it speaks Greek. The Christian movement began speaking what language? Aramaic or Hebrew. Now they're already working in a Greek culture. Pretty soon it's going to be Latin. Then it's going to be Coptic and Gothic and Syriac. Boom, there it goes. Starts to spread. Isn't that amazing? This is how Paul writes. Have this mind among yourselves, which you have in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality as something to be grasped, or equality with God as something to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Um, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, most of us here are pretty familiar with this stuff. The story's old to us in some way. And that's because we know how it all turned out. I mean, uh, we can read the whole thing and what? An hour if we read the Gospel of Mark, the oldest. Uh, not a lot of surprises left. In my case, I don't know how many times I've read this. That's how I make my living. And I'm 71 years old. I became a Christian when I was 20. This is old hat to me. But it, even going back farther than that, starting with the book of Genesis, we're familiar with the story. We know about Moses and David and Ruth and Esther and so on and so forth, unless you're brand new to the family of faith. Uh, in that sense, we have an advantage because we know how it turns out. But it also works to our disadvantage because it can feel kind of boring and rote and lifeless. Uh, it's a little like uh, reading the same children's book to one of your kids for the hundredth time. Or in my case, I have almost 11 grandchildren, the 200th time, or actually, we, never mind, a lot. And uh, it becomes so familiar, you almost have it memorized. You can just sort of recite one of these children books after another. The well, same is true in our understanding of the Christian story, and especially the coming of Jesus and what he accomplished. But think about this. The first followers of Jesus did not have that advantage. They didn't know how the story would turn out. They weren't reading the story. They were in the story. And imagine how confusing this must have been for them. Who is this man? Because he was a man, you know. He was a real human being. Caught him and he bleeds. He had to go to the bathroom. He wore diapers at the equivalent of 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ was once an embryo in a woman's womb. It's amazing to think about. He had to learn how to talk. It wasn't like he was born knowing all languages. 
well, what am I going to try today, you know? And they knew him as a human being. And gradually, they had to figure things out as the story unfolded over about three years. Now, what I want to do is retell that story very quickly. I want you to use your imaginations to get inside the mind and heart of these first followers of Jesus who didn't know what you know now. All right, for one thing, they're all Jews. All the first followers of Jesus were Jews. We folks, non-Jews, entered the story a little bit later. And they grew up in what I'd call a really thick religious culture. There was a lot to it. It wasn't thin. You know, you kind of go to church on Sunday and that's pretty much it. Not, not these folks. Uh, they, they cut their teeth on the Torah. They sat under the teaching of a rabbi. They'd go to the temple several times a year for festivals where they'd sacrifice and so on. They memorized stuff. They practiced circumcision. Uh, they followed very strict dietary laws. I mean, this is a very thick kind of religion. And they all confessed faith in what was called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Singular, transcendent, holy, other. The divide between creation and our creator and creation was infinite to the Jews. There's God and there's everything And then Jesus Christ shows up. Um, he was born in northern Galilee, rural, not in Jerusalem, not in the city, a farming and uh, uh, community or a fishing community. I'm almost certain they knew him somehow long before he became their rabbi and their teacher because he grew up there. Uh, it's puzzling to think that the Gospels don't tell any of those stories except, oh, except for one when he was 12 years old. My guess is he was such an ordinary human being, there wasn't much to say. He builds furniture, learns the Torah, goes to bed, eats, wakes up the next day, and does the same thing. Just not a lot there. At 30, he enters the scene, and everything changes on a dime. First thing that Jesus does is he recruits some followers. Um, and they learn from him as this little band of people and then begins to attract a wider following because there's something about him that's unusual. Now, it's always normal for us humans to fit people into categories. We do that by how they dress. I'm dressed way better than you guys are today. I didn't even wear a sport coat. I'm only kidding, obviously. But... You know, you, you, when you see me, you classify me because of my dress, or I'm a university professor. You must use big words or something like that, you know. Uh, we do that with dentists, with doctors, with teachers, with bankers. We do that in all kinds of ways. We create categories for them to fit in so that we can understand them better. It's not always a mean-spirited thing to do. Well, they did that to Jesus. The first word they used of Jesus was teacher or rabbi. It was a clearly designated category in their brains. Rabbis would gather a small group of disciples and train them in the way of the law, the way of Moses. There were rabbinic schools that have slightly different interpretations of 
of the law and how, how you obey it. Well, Jesus was a rabbi, but he didn't quite fit the category. How so? Just look at who he recruited. Rabbis always wanted to recruit the best and brightest. The early disciples were not the best and brightest, and they really didn't fit together at all, except for the fact that they were following Jesus. Here's another one. This will be a little less familiar to you. Rabbis always functioned within a school, and they always quoted sources, like scholars do, footnotes, you know. You probably always skip the footnotes. Most people do, but that's their way of establishing their authority. Jesus never once quoted another rabbi. It's as if he was his own school. Not only that, but he recruited women as his disciples. No rabbi would do that. The last thing to observe is that he did something that actually was incredibly scandalous for a rabbi to do. He forgave sins. Now, we're all supposed to forgive people if someone offends us. Say, uh, you know, my wife was really crabby this morning and said, get out of here, you know, go preach your sermons or something. I'd say, honey, this afternoon, I, I forgive you. That wasn't a kind thing to say. But that's not what <laughs> this Jesus did. If Richie then came and said, uh, I'm going to forgive your wife for insulting you, I'd say, it's none of your business. I don't care what you think. And she doesn't even more so. That's what Jesus was doing to people, is if he had the authority to forgive all sin. So, rabbi didn't quite work. Well, let's try miracle work. He was a miracle worker. And there were other miracle workers in the world at that time because Jesus himself mentions it in one of the Gospels. But not like this miracle worker. Jesus had a kind of authority to do things that the typical miracle worker can't do. How about restoring sight to the blind? How about stilling storms at sea? How about resuscitating people from the dead? This is a new category of miracle, as if he has the power over nature, even over death. The other thing to observe about Jesus as a miracle worker is there are no potions, incantations, little formulas to follow. What did Jesus do? I say to you, walk. That's it. Just the word. And it happened. So miracle worker didn't quite work. Let's try prophet. You can see that this is unfolding through the gospel stories, by the way, these different kind of categories. Prophet. Uh, there were other prophets in Israel, Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah. The last prophet was a contemporary with Jesus, John the Baptist. Jesus acted a lot like a prophet. But not really. So here's Jesus teaching on the law. Prophets taught on the law, as rabbis did. Uh, but Jesus said this at one time. Uh, You've heard that it was said, and then he quote from the Old Testament. But I say to you, and then improves on it. Improving on the Old Testament law as a Jew? Prophets would always say, thus saith the Lord. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. As if he were the Lord. Didn't fit the category. So the last one they tried on was Messiah. 
This was toward the end of his public ministry. And they got really excited because the Jews had this, had this uh, deep longing for the appearance of the Messiah. And the Messiah had a clear job description in the minds of Jews. He would appear with power and influence. He would amass a following, move toward Jerusalem with his following, uh, set off a revolt against the great enemy, the Roman Empire, defeat them, reestablish Israel's independence, and usher in a golden age. He would be like King David, only greater. Now imagine what it must have been like to follow Jesus with that expectation in your brain, because toward the end of his public ministry, where did Jesus go? Jerusalem. And when he got close to it, he got on a donkey, and he had this huge parade, and everybody was crying out to him, Blessed is you uh, who comes in the name of the Lord, and called him David. It's time. The revolt is about to happen. But according to his very prediction, which they refused to listen to, he was arrested or betrayed by the Jews, Jewish leaders, I should say, abandoned by his closest friend, trumped up on tri- uh, 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 or, uh, tried on trumped up charges by Roman authorities, and executed through the brutal use of the cross. And he died outside the city gates, as if being cast off by the Jews. Now you're one of his followers. You tell me what you're feeling when you watch this man die in such ignominy. Disillusion, desperation, anger, fear. What happens to him right afterwards? They all go in hiding. Are you ready to invent a new religion at that moment? I mean, I've seen people die. I wasn't here last week because my great-nephew uh, died of osteosarcoma. He was 19 years old, a Whitworth student, and, and did his memorial service on the other side of the state. I've lost my wife and a daughter and my mother in an accident. I was in no position to do any kind of creative thinking for months, even years. And yet, within three days, literally three days, these followers of Jesus are wild with joy and begin to announce that the man who they thought as a rabbi or a miracle worker or a prophet was the Son of God, who has come to set the world free from sin and death and hell. And he proved it by conquering death, the resurrection. Now, if you're a disciple, you've got a lot to think through. Jesus turned your world completely upside down. Everything you thought about the human story, the human community, service, meaning in life, purpose, authority, all the categories that we have in our minds, Jesus turned all of them upside down. This is why it took them a while to think through the implications of this. How do we understand the human story in light of the coming of Jesus Christ? How do we understand our own stories in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ, our own individual ones. You mean that even my story, as messy it is, it can be redeemed? That I can really live meaningfully and purposefully 
that I'm not uh, subject to the fate of my own past? Our understanding of authority, understanding of community. Human communities are always based on a hierarchy. You've, you've seen this, you've experienced this, maybe you've suffered from it. It could be white over black, it could be educated over uneducated, it could be American over something else, Republican over Democrat, vaxxer over anti-vaxxer, I don't know, we always do this. We always create hierarchies. Jesus Christ came and he smashed all those hierarchies. He says he broke down the dividing wall of hostility that exists in the human community. Back then the biggest one was Jew and Gentile. Done. Over. Jews don't have an advantage anymore. They've lost all their power. Jesus Christ came and broke all down. All those dividing walls of hostility to create one new person in place of the two, Paul says. Paul also says, in Christ, you all become a new creation. That's it. Then all your other identities are formed and shaped and transformed by that primary idea. I am no longer primarily a white, American, heterosexual, married, father, grandfather, man. That's done. I have no advantage with that. I am a new creation in Jesus Christ, period. Same when it comes to their understanding of authority, service in the world. All of that is transformed by the coming of Jesus Christ. It is unbelievable what it must have been like for them to discover all this over a period of time. I mean, read, can you imagine what it was like for them to read the Old Testament in light of the coming of Jesus? Oh my gosh, did we miss that one. You can imagine the kinds of conversations they had with each other. Do you remember when Jesus said, and how about when he did, and boy, did we get that one wrong. Imagine how Peter must have felt when he rebuked Jesus for saying he was the Messiah who was going to go suffer and die for the sins of the world. And Peter said to you, oh no, Lord, that isn't going to happen to you, and rebukes him. Oh boy, I'm feeling a little embarrassed right now. You see? Their minds must have been blown by what happened in light of the resurrection. And by the way, a resurrection and a resuscitation are not the same thing. A resuscitation means you're given life again, but all resuscitated people do what? Die again. Jesus Christ did not die. He was given a body that was fit for all of eternity. So let me give you just a little hint. At one point when the disciples are still hiding, Jesus appears among them as if he passed through the wall. Our tendency is to think the wall was solid and Jesus was a ghost. It's the opposite. Jesus was solid. The wall was ghosty. Because Jesus, in his resurrected state, becomes true substance. Real. It's like gray and white and black turn into color. It's like two dimensions become three. It's what all of us will experience ourselves in the resurrection. I'll tell you, it's like they read a mystery novel, came to the end of it, realized, oh, so that's who did it, and then they had to go backwards to put the whole narrative together again in light of what turned out. That's what happened to them. One thing in particular was especially significant, and it's this. 
Let's take Thomas's experience, one of the followers of Jesus, as an example. He's called the Doubting Thomas. That's his name. And he said to his other disciples when they were talking nonsense about a resurrection with his arms crossed, unless I see him myself and put my finger in his wounds, I won't believe a thing. Jesus shows up. Thomas looks at him. And Jesus said, you know, Thomas, it's okay. I'm not going to shame you. Just take your finger, put it in my hands and feet. Put your hand in my side. Am I real? Are you touching a ghost? Or are you experiencing something that's just brand new? And Thomas, in that moment, bows his knee to the man Jesus, the man he had known and followed for three years, bows his knee and says to him, my Lord and my God. Now, I'm a human being. Maybe I'm preaching a pretty good sermon here today. I don't know. But you would never call me Lord and God. It would be blasphemy as you did, if you did. He didn't call Jesus a God. He called him God. He used the divine name. All Jews believed that God was on the creator side of things in this infinite gap between the two. And he's calling the man Jesus by the divine name. Well, I mean, imagine if you're a Jew. Figure that one out. Wait a minute. God, God. Took them a while to work this one out. And they came to two conclusions over time. Now, I'm going to get a little theological with you. Sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry at all. When they looked at the man Jesus Christ, they believed they were looking through a window. A window into the very being of God, as God truly is. So the, the gap between creator and creation had been bridged through this one man. Such that if you say, I believe in Jesus, you believe in God. If you say, if you pray to Jesus, you're praying to God. If you um, follow Jesus, you're following God. Jesus Christ is in a window that helps us see who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, in an eternal relationship. Blew their mind. The other thing is they realize Jesus Christ is also a mirror. When you see Jesus Christ, you're seeing what God wants and will have all humanity become the new Adam, the true person, a mirror that helps us see what all of us are becoming through Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit. When you do something stupid and you just say, oh, I was just being human, actually, no, you were being inhuman. When you sin, you're inhuman. When you live in purity and peace and goodness, when you serve, when you love, when you're humble, that's being human. That's being like Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ not only transforms us by his work on the cross and in the resurrection, he's going to make us like him 
itself with all the kind of beauty and goodness that you see in him. Window, mirror. Now, <clears throat> it's like discovering a supernova for the first time in a telescope. It's like, it's like discovering the theory of relativity as Einstein did and realized that all of physics has to be reworked in light of this discovery. That's what it's like to know Jesus Christ. He turns everything upside down. Now, with that in mind, we're getting close to the end, so you can all relax here. Um, I want to read a quote from a church father. Um, it's Gregory of Nazianzus. He was uh, Cap called one of the Cappadocian fathers. It's called uh, Cappadocia was in uh, central uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. I was just there last September, and uh, it's kind of a rugged place. And he was one of the great thinkers of early Christianity. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox Church just calls him the theologian. I mean, imagine that. A whole religious tradition just calls you the theologian. And he pondered how we could comprehend the mystery of the nature of Jesus Christ as divine and human. And I'm going to read it now. Everybody says you shouldn't read a longer quote, but I'm going to anyway. But notice the beauty of this language. It's just astonishing to me. He, meaning Jesus, he hungered, yet he fed thousands. He thirsted, yet he explained, Whoever, uh, whosoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He was tired, yet he is the rest of the weary and the burden. He prays, yet he hears prayer. He weeps, yet he puts an end to all weeping. He is sold, and cheap was the price, 30 pieces of silver. Yet he buys back the world at the mighty cost. A sheep, he is led to the slaughter, yet he shepherds Israel, and now the whole world as well. A lamb, he is dumb, yet he is the word of God. He is weak and wounded, yet he cures every disease and every weakness. He is brought up to the tree and nailed to it, yet by the tree of life he restores us. He is given vinegar to drink, gall to eat, and who is he? Why, one who turned water into wine, who took away the taste of bitterness, who is all sweetness and desire. He surrenders his life, yet he has power to take it again. He dies, but he vivifies, and by death destroys death. He is buried, yet he rises again. Everything you can imagine that's evil and wicked and perverse in the world, all our fanaticism, our bipartisanship, our meanness, our envy, our greed, our self-hatred, our anxiety, our depression, sin, death, hell, Jesus Christ conquered it all. Or this reflection on the early church fathers. These early Christian writers believed that they were witnessing the glorious condescension, they meant that in a positive way, of the divine splendor and greatness. As they expressed it, big became little, strength, weakness, rich, poor, wise, foolish. Providence chose personhood, power embraced pain, sovereignty gave way to suffering. 
It was as if it, it was as if all the light of the universe, galaxy upon galaxy of blazing brightness, was reduced to the flicker of one candle, without suffering any diminution, without becoming less radiant than it was before. It was as if all the weight of the universe redu was reduced to the lightness of a feather, light enough to tickle the palm of your hand, without becoming less heavy than it was before. The divine light and weight became hidden and concealed. The Son of God became an embryo and nine months later was born in a stable, perfectly, bloodily, painfully human, but no less divine. Now listen, the early Christian movement had the task of forming people in this faith, of trying to figure out how to live with this kind of revolutionary message. That was a huge project. It would have been so easy for this movement to be, to accommodate to the Roman Empire in order to kind of win its favor and then to keep compromising again and again and again until it just disappeared. Or, on the opposite, to isolate, to protect themselves and then gradually fade into irrelevance. They didn't do either one. They formed people in the faith with such integrity and conviction and maturity that for over a 300 year period of time facing consistent opposition they grew that movement until it transformed the Roman world. We face the same kinds of challenges today because we're living in Rome right now and it would be very easy for us to be absorbed by our own cultural setting and become woke Christians or to become Christian nationalists, or consumer Christians, or prosperity Christians, to figure out how to keep accommodating so we can maintain our own cultural privilege and power, and we will gradually fade away in numbers and in influence. No, Jesus Christ calls us to trust Him, but also to imitate Him. And that is going to require some kind of process of formation. Always in grace. Always in grace. May God make this church that kind of church. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me? I'd love to pray for you. Jesus, you see every story here today. You know every pain, every thing that we've endured, every tension that we face right now. You hear every cry of our heart. You understand every thought that we've struggled with. And yet your nature, Jesus, who you are, your power, your glory, your wonder, your transforming love. God is just this constant invitation. Jesus, to walk out of our old life, to walk out of our brokenness, and to become like you. Jesus, we just ask that for your church today. Healing, strength, purity, hope. God, change us. Make us into your likeness. Make us like you, Jesus. 
Lord, I ask that your church would be strengthened in this time, that your people would endure, that we would be formed into your likeness, Jesus, that we wouldn't compromise to the pressure of our surroundings, God, that we would be challenged to be rooted and established in your love, God. Thank you for Jerry. Thank you for his words, God. I just love you so much, Jesus, and ask, God, that you would make us your people, make us your church. In your name, amen. Can we say thank you to Jerry one more time for his words here today? I love him. Well, we love you a ton, real life. Those Connect cards, those giving envelopes, you can drop those in the back on your way out in those black boxes. Make sure you grab one of those study guides on your way out. If you need prayer about anything, questions about being baptized, we will meet you up front here. Our, our team, our elders, our staff will meet you up here. We would love to pray with you, talk with you about anything. Have an amazing Sunday. We'll see you next Thanks week. Thanks so much Bye. for joining us on the Real Life Spokane podcast. We exist to reach this world for Jesus one person at a time. And you can help us do that by liking, sharing, or subscribing to this podcast. We love you so much, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.